Hey guys, welcome to the Abe Summer Series, a nine episode series dedicated to energy and recovery. I'm your host, Paula Glover, President and CEO of the American Association of Blacks and Energy. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or YouTube. Subscribe so you never miss an episode. For all things Abe, visit us at aabe.org and follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to week two of the Abe 2020 Summer Series, Wednesdays with Abe. Today, we're going to be talking about pandemic economics, how companies and individuals retain financial stability during a pandemic, lessons learned from COVID-19, and likely policy prescriptions. First, though, I want to thank our sponsors. Um, we really appreciate the support of our sponsors um, in all the work that we do. Um, and in particularly today. So let's get started today um, with a brief introduction of our terrific speakers. Our first panelist is Mr. Robert Schwears Jr. He is the Chief Economist of Strategic Planning, Economics and Energy Markets at Chevron. Rob manages the company's economics and energy research team and advises senior executives on economic and energy market dynamics to aid in developing business plans and growth strategies for Chevron. He has given numerous presentations on energy markets to internal organizations and prominent external groups such as the National Defense University, the International Energy Agency, the Eisenhower Fellows, Western States Petroleum Association, and the Texas Oil and Gas Association. He has also contributed to several external industry publications, including Energy and Security, Strategies for a World in Transition, and the International Energy Agency's World Energy Outlook. So please join me in giving Rob a virtual welcome. Happy to have you with us today, Rob. Second, we have Ms. Kate Norman, Senior Vice President and Chief Commercial Risk Officer for Exelon Corporation. Kate leads the risk management function for Constellation and Exelon Generation. As a member of the Constellation Leadership Committee, she is responsible for the identification, assessment, and monitoring of strategic, financial, and operational risks, and the communication of those risks to the Finance and Risk Committee of the Board of Directors. Previously, Norman was Vice President Wholesale Trading, where she directed the management and strategy of the Southeast, ERCOT, Environmental, and Proprietary Trading, proprietary trading Portfolios. Please join me in welcoming Kate Norman. Happy to have you with us today, Kate. And finally, our moderator for today, Ms. Sarah Ladislaw, Senior Vice President and Director and Senior Fellow, Energy Security and Climate Change Program, Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS. Um, she leads CSIS's work in energy policy, market and technology analysis. Sarah is an expert in US energy policy, global oil and natural gas markets and climate change. She has authored numerous publications on the geopolitics of energy, energy security and climate change, low carbon pathways, and a wide variety of issues on US energy policy, regulation, and market dynamics. Her regional energy work includes publications on Chinese, European, African, and Western hemisphere energy issues. Sarah has spearheaded new work at CSIS on climate change, the electricity sector, and energy technology development and join me in virtually welcoming Sarah as well. And so today um, we are gonna talk pandemic economics and I'm gonna turn it over to you, Sarah, and this tremendous um, team of my, um, panelists. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for having me, uh, Paula. And uh, it's such a pleasure to be here on this Abe Summer Series. Sounds like a great way to go over all of the amazing and tumultuous things going on in our world today and what that means for all of us working in the industry. So really a, a great pleasure to be here. Um, I'm going to uh, have try my best to have an interesting conversation that covers uh, all these topics that you just sort of laid out uh, in, in the title of this organization and, and really pleased to have uh, uh, Rob and Kate here to, to, to have that conversation with. Um, I know that you were planning on also asking folks to, to have uh, questions uh, in the question and answer uh, dialogue box at the uh, below. So what we'll do is I think Rob and Kate and I'll have a conversation for about uh, 40 minutes or so and then uh, certainly look to opening it up to all of the questions that you have from, from the audience that's assembled today. So we'll look forward to doing that. 
So, you know, we at CSIS, uh, as you saw from my overly lengthy bio, we try and cover all things that are interesting and strategic in the energy sector, and this summer has certainly given us our money's worth. Uh, pandemic economics is uh, uh, no, small, uh, no small issue. Uh, we, uh, we certainly uh, uh, are spending a lot of time thinking about the trajectory of the pandemic and also thinking about what that means for the broader economy and then specifically what that means for the energy sector. And so far, you know, we've seen a demand downturn uh, that has occurred because of the, the, the lockdown situation. We've seen uh, a supply response and a supply chain response to economies being shut down. We've seen uh, uh, an economic hit that we're really unsure of how long that's going to last. Um, we're starting to see uh, economic stimulus uh, in a variety of forms more long-lasting than the fiscal stimulus we saw uh, at the outset of this crisis. And, and really one open question is what we're seeing in terms of behavioral change. And so I get the privilege of being the moderator, so I don't need to answer those questions. I'm going to have Rob and Kate do that today, uh, and they can tell me what's going to happen with the energy sector. So Maybe just to get us kicked off, um, I was just curious uh, for both of your perspectives on you know, what impact that this pandemic has had on your industry and your assessment about how your industry as a whole, maybe we'll hold off on your specific companies uh, for the time being, how well prepared were they for this and, and, and what, has the, what has the impact been overall? So maybe we'll start with Kate and then I'll go to Rob. Uh, sure, uh, thanks Sarah. Um, so one of the things, so the company um, that I work with is involved in a number of different parts of the industry in terms of um, uh, working with electric, having electric utilities as well as a competitive energy business. So when you talk about how this has uh, impacted the industry, and I know Rob has much more oil and gas focus, um, there's so many aspects of it. Um, so one of the things I think a lot about is the, the competitive customer business. And, you know, we've as everyone has just all of a sudden shut down and gone into quarantine, we've seen like drastic reductions um, in demand. And so, you know, we often look at those risks all the time and we're used to managing these risks really more from a weather perspective or um, more gradual changes over time as different things shift in kind of the supply demand economics. But rarely are we faced with the idea that some of our customers will be completely out of business, some of our customers will be operating in a very different way, and what does that really mean for the existing uh, you know, contracts we have and, and what it means kind of going forward and, and how that's to be managed. So in terms of how well prepared the industry was, I, I think that's a really difficult thing to, to uh, answer, I think, in the ways that we're usually looking at changes in consumption, we're prepared to look at these things. It's just on the order, just a whole lot more um, significant. Um, and, and the other bit that I would say is the challenge is really understanding what those long-term implications will be. You know, which, which players will continue to, uh, you know, run their businesses in the same way, uh, which, which industries will dramatically change the way they do business and thus consume energy. You know, even, uh, you know, we have a company of over 30,000 people and we have, I think, close to 25,000 of those people working remotely, just something that would be unheard of. And so what does that really mean? Um, I, you know, I feel like I've filled my gas tank up only twice since uh, in the past two months. So just lots of things to really consider. So, um, and then on the utility front, uh, you know, something that is definitely requires much more in-person um, type, you know, interaction with customers and a real concern for, you know, unemployment being so high and customers' inability to really pay bills and thus, um, uh, you know, just a big focus on trying to keep the lights on and really manage those effects on customers. And so as far as how prepared we are, you know, the, the ways that we usually absorb these shocks are helpful in this kind of situation, but it's definitely uncharted new territory. Yeah, and for all of us, you know, who've been stuck at home for, I counted yesterday was 96 days. So I guess today is 97 days for me at home. I mean, having, you know, reliable electric power services and all the people that were out working and making all of that possible during this period of time has certainly been a blessing. And so certainly a big thanks goes out to your industry for being able to make sure that that happens. Um, Rob, how about you from your perspective, more from the oil and gas company side of things? Yeah, so good morning, everybody. Pleasure to be here. Um, 
you know, from an oil and gas perspective, I think I'd, you know, echo a lot of the same similar things as Kate. I think, you know, as, as we look at, you know, what the oil and gas industries had to deal with, it's really the, the combination of shocks. So the first shock is kind of the, the pandemic, if you will. And, you know, by our count, roughly, you know, 95% of global economic output was in some sort of shelter in place or lockdown at its peak kind of in April. And that means, you know, things aren't moving, people aren't moving. And so when we look at, you know, the contraction in demand, it was, you know, unprecedented. I know that term often, you know, gets overused in times like this, but we've seen, you know, demand contractions on the order of 25, 30% at its peak in April and into May. Um, so that was really kind of shock number one. And then as that unfolded, um, Saudi Arabia and Russia elected to get into a little bit of a, of a price war and actually elected to increase supply at the same time that, uh, you know, demand was declining. And so you saw this rapid build in inventories through kind of mid-April into early May. And that quickly forced the industry to start thinking about, okay, are we actually going to run out of places to put crude oil? Um, are we going to run out of storage globally here in the United States? And that's why you saw prices decline from, you know, the 50s and 40s down below $20 and even negative um, temporarily here in the United States. Uh, I guess the good news is we look forward is, you know, I think the, the peak of the storm is kind of behind us. We're seeing demand start to recover in a very positive sense. Um, the industry has responded um, and started to curtail production and output at refineries to kind of mitigate that inventory pressure. And so, um, I think, you know, those risks of hitting sort of capacity limits and all that, at least for the time being, seem to be a thing of the past. So I think the, the question for the industry now as we look forward is how quickly do you ramp up and how quickly do you recover? I guess the, the last point I would make is, you know, on a positive sense, while the industry overall wasn't prepared for these dual shocks, I would say it's done a pretty remarkable job overall in terms of keeping supply resilient and available to customers for the products that they want and has done it in a relatively safe way. And so we've been able to, you know, manage kind of the health aspects um, and the, the uh, business continuity aspects of this crisis to keep energy supply flowing and making sure we're meeting the demands of customers, which I think is a positive because, as I said, this, this shock was really, you know, unforeseen and unprecedented. Rob, one of the questions that I get a lot is, and, and then maybe ask the same thing to Kate, is, you know, whether the oil and gas industry was on sound financial footing going into this pandemic and what the impact might be on the sort of financial stability of the industry writ large. I mean, what what are your thoughts on that? And then maybe, Kate, I'll ask you the same thing. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, and it's hard to answer because I think it really depends on company-specific dynamics, but I'll, I'll try to answer it in the broad sense. So I think when you look at sort of the financial viability of the industry overall heading into the crisis, I think people saw an increasingly competitive market environment where demand was softening, uh, supply for both oil and gas was long, um, and, you know, the ability to generate a competitive return at, you know, a $60 oil price was questionable. And so you started to see the sector fall out of favor among investors. So if you look at, you know, oil and gas, the share of the S&P 500, it was at a historic low, even with, you know, relatively stable and constructive market conditions. And so that was a little bit of a sign that, hey, there's a question mark around kind of the sustainability of the business model. What I would say is that the the COVID pandemic and the, the following sort of dual shocks that we're dealing with has really accelerated the pace of change. And so it's forced, you know, companies to really scale back capital programs, look for ways to reduce OPEX to get much more financially viable at a, at a lower oil price. And so you're seeing, um, you know, a lot of that activity, you've seen some bankruptcies, particularly among kind of the independents and the EMPs who operate here in the United States. And I do think one of the outcomes of this will be some sort of consolidation. And I think that consolidation for the oil and gas industry is needed to create a more kind of sustainable and constructive financial business model going forward. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Kate, how about from your perspective? Uh, well, one of the things I think we've, we focus a lot on in this time is, you know, retail um, uh, electric providers and gas providers, because, uh, you know, one of the phenomenons that we, you know, have been kind of grappling with. It's uh, one of the things that usually happens is customers will not only have to pay a variable charge for as much electricity that they consume, but given kind of the nature and structure of the industry, 
there are a, a number of demand-based charges that are just fixed costs that often get unitized and added to the variable cost of electricity. So I'm going to pay the same dollar amount for however many, um, or same rate for however many megawatt hours I consume or you know, decatherms I consume. And so to the extent you have a big shock like this, you know, companies were assuming there was generally going to be an estimated amount of consumption whereby you could recoup these demand charges that you're responsible as an energy provider um, for paying on behalf of your customers. And so, you know, I think you see a couple different things here. Uh, some companies, and these are largely unhedgeable risks um, for the most part. Uh, this isn't like I'm going to buy gas or power to um, in the marketplace to to back up, um, you know, my my charge. If I've unitized the cost, it's very difficult to really um, to to really recoup that in these kinds of um, kind of shocking things. So I think you're going to much along the consolidation note. You'll probably see some customer or companies that just can't really weather this um, and as you know we don't really know how long the prolonged decrease in consumption will really be in some areas um, and so to the extent that they you know have a mix of customers you know on the other side on the resi side everyone's home everyone's using more power so you know if that's really more the mix of customers you have that's been a benefit right um, so I think we're kind of looking at what are the different products that might better support this um, for customers and, um, you know, how can we kind of evolve that, which companies will win and which companies will lose is, you know, something that we'll just, we'll just have to see. Maybe um, sticking with you for a minute, Kate, how, turning to Exelon as a company, right, what are all the things that you've had to do to weather the crisis sort of from a, corporate strategy perspective, but also just from a human perspective. You, you mentioned how many remote workers you have. I mean, it's it's probably been a large undertaking. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so strangely enough, I think, um, you know, a couple years back, we went through a process by reviewing with a number of our opcos what a pandemic plan would look like, just so, you know, which you know, nobody really believes in a pandemic until it happens, right? Um, and so I think we had a number of kind of business continuity planning efforts that were in place ready to be activated. So that was really helpful in terms of providing the structure by which these conversations and considerations would be had. Um, and so, uh, so some of the things, you know, as this kind of came down, we quickly shut down um, travel within the organization, visits to customers, and um, had a quick and thorough review of which jobs we would determine would be essential. And so essential workers, you know, for example, those that are actually operating power plants, those that are actually fixing distribution lines. Um, and, you know, the review was, you know, what needed to be done alongside with consulting what the CDC guidelines would be in order to keep these workers safe. So no longer could you have two utility workers riding together to a job site in the same truck you know, what needed to be wiped down. So all of the different um, protocols. And then the supply group was working as was everyone, every company to try to get the most PPE that was possible at the time such that these jobs could be supported in a safe way. For the remote workers, you know, there's always the idea that remote work doesn't work um, in mass until you're forced to do it. And I think it has been very surprising for the company in many ways to see that work so seamlessly. And so, um, you know, there was a, a lot of work making sure folks were um, aware of how to kind of connect to the system and, and how to handle all of these things. And, and then the communication was really important about, you know, folks were not really allowed to be at work. And what I think employees really appreciated was when we did that work, it was very much first and foremost focused on uh, employee safety. And so to the extent that uh, you know, it's jarring to all of a sudden find yourself working um, for those people with very young kids, with a bunch of kids running around that also did not have a place to go. Those types of things were potentially very difficult for a lot of folks and everyone has their list of things. But I think people appreciated that the overall, the, the uh, focus on safety is, is really, you know, important. And I feel that the company's not going to put me in harm's way. So, um, 
and and then the planning goes on. There's there's phases of planning to to get us back to work and to determine, you know, what really needs to happen. We don't uh, know what will happen with this. You know, whether we'll have a number of waves and whatnot. So we'll we have to continue to plan for all of those outcomes. Uh, so. Um, and then, I, I lastly, I mentioned one of our businesses um, in our constellation business is a group called BGE Home, and these folks are coming in to fix HVAC systems, replace water heaters, things like that. And these are really important things for people. And, and you know, so there were a number of of um, uh, work streams planned for how to even go into a home where someone had a positive COVID case. To keep the workers safe, to you know, because these are folks really in need of of a hot water or of uh, you know, uh, power systems, and so, you know, I think people were really proud of the efforts that people um, took within the company to make sure that that was actually possible, so we could still do that for customers. No, absolutely, Rob. I, what about from Chevron's perspective? I mean, I think you've got probably a lot of similar dynamics uh, as well, but it'd be good to hear about your planning process. Yeah, no, I would I would echo a lot of what Kate has said. I think from a you know business continuity standpoint, similar we had you know continuity plans. I think never did we foresee them being implemented you know over the course of months virtually across our entire global operation. So I think that was a bit of a challenge, but I think that gave us good tools and processes from which to to you know execute from, and and that's been you know pretty flawless. And as I said, we and I would say the rest of the industry has done a good job keeping our operations and facilities running in light of, um, you know, the health crisis. And we've done so, you know, keeping our workforce safe and healthy. So I think that is a testament to kind of the planning. I think the work from home dynamic, similar experience, our culture, you know, pre-COVID was, you know, not all that receptive or warm to kind of the working from home environment. And I think it's definitely surprised to kind of the upside in terms of what's effective. And I think, you know, one of the things I would say is it's forced us to use and prioritize our time much more effectively. And, you know, an example I can give is we typically have engagements with our senior leadership and we had one the other day that typically takes a full day of face-to-face -face meetings and we got what we accomplished uh, in a day in the past face-to-face -face in about two hours because people wanted to use their time more effectively. And so I think it just speaks to sort of the power of when you have, you know, different demands pulling on you, you know, you can, you can really be more efficient. And I guess from a, a company standpoint, the other thing I would mention is, you know, one of our philosophies um, when you look at our corporate strategy is to really maintain a healthy balance sheet, recognizing that our industry, there are commodity cycles and you need to prepare for kind of the downsides. And so, you know, we had a pretty healthy balance sheet going into us, going into the, the cycle, and that gave us kind of the flexibility to adapt. And so the question mark for us is knowing what we'll see light at the end of the tunnel is how quickly do you ramp down operations? And then as you start to think, see things recover, how quickly do you ramp up? And what's the right sweet spot so that, you know, you're sort of balancing near-term financial priorities and not sacrificing maybe the, the medium or, or longer-term growth trajectory that we were planning on prior to the crisis. So those are some discussions that have been had um, in recognition that the commodity market is probably going to be a lower price environment, at least for the next several years than we were planning on six months ago. So Rob, you brought up the, the commodity cycle. I mean, I think the next, you know, obvious question is well, here we are at this moment in time, right? It's uh, mid-June. Uh, and uh, most people think that we, we're not completely done with this virus experience. So we've got to, now that we know what, what we've been through, we have to plan for, you know, the next three, six, nine, 12 months. How are you guys thinking about that time frame, uh, both in terms of your own planning, what you're thinking about the potential virus trajectory and what that could mean for the economy and for your business? And particularly, like, what's your view on oil prices without getting into areas you're not supposed to be in? But, like, what are you guys starting to think about uh, for, for some of those issues? Yeah, so from, uh, you know, given the uncertainty, I think one of the things we've learned through this crisis is that a lot of our traditional kind of economic models that we use for forecasting don't really deal with this crisis well. And that, you know, the, the behavioral aspects that link kind of health policy as well as economics together uh, – forced us to kind of rethink how, how we foresee the world and, and bound that uncertainty. And so we really adopted a, a kind of a scenario planning approach 
that links kind of different health outcomes, different policy outcomes, and different economic outcomes to kind of ban that range of uncertainty and then kind of signpost towards that. Um, I guess the good news, you know, it's only been a month and a half since we've kind of hit bottom and started to recover. But I think from both an economic standpoint as well as a petroleum product standpoint, you know, we've actually been pleasantly surprised at qu how quickly demand has recovered. And it's actually probably recovered, um, you know, a bit quicker than we anticipated. But I think as we look forward, we anticipate that pace of change will start to slow over time because it gets into more structural things like the virus and potential reinfections and second waves. Um, it gets into, you know, how much, you know, how much permanent unemployment is there in places like the United States and China and Europe and some of the big energy consuming economies of the world. And so as I think, as we think about kind of the virus, um, I think we, you know, we've kind of assumed that, you know, there, there's future risk, but that, you know, we'll learn from kind of the current episode and our uh, ability to effectively target measures absent the vaccine will prevent sort of total shut-ins of the economy, but we do have sort of downsides that assume kind of second wave, but not as bad as what we've seen over the past few months. And so as we start to talk about, you know, what does the oil market recovery look like? I think it's really a function of two things. It's a function of kind of the economic and demand recovery. Um, and then it's really a function of how quickly does the supply side respond? And then, you know, more importantly, how resilient are kind of the current OPEC cuts that have really kind of accelerated the market rebalancing over the last month. And so as we look forward, you know, if, if you get market conditions where demand continues to maybe surprise to the upside and OPEC remains disciplined, I think we could see oil prices, you know, trading $40, $50. But I think because we've accumulated so much inventory um, over the last month and a half, that's really gonna cap any sort of price upside that we see for the foreseeable future. And then I think when you start talking about downsides and, you know, does that create some tension within OPEC uh, around their resolve to sustain the cuts, you know, you could talk like a $30, $40 world <clears throat> as you get out, you know, six, 12 months into the future. So that's kind of how I would bound it. Yeah, sort of the, the lower for longer uh, story continues, right? So, uh, Kate, what about you? What about from your perspective, your near and medium term outlook? What are some of the key factors? Yeah. and and while one of the things we do when we think about oil prices, we think a lot about the effect it has on natural gas prices. Um, so both from, a, you know, w when you have a lot of wet production and there's ample, um, you know, molecules of natural gas flowing, how does, how does a potential like a longer term recovery with lower oil output in specific areas affect the different locations of the national of the natural gas market. So we, we have um, some gas fired units um, in our Texas market and we see a lot of dynamics kind of depending upon where the production is. And, you know, I would say last year it was a whole story of there just wasn't enough pipe um, capacity to get gas from different locations to other locations. And so how would we organize our, our way of thinking and, and hedging our exposures because of that? And now we have, you know, the, this whole other element of, you know, what will oil recovery look like? What does that mean for gas, natural gas production? What does that mean for the capacity um, constraints that we've seen before? Um, and, 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 and still we have, you know, the other, you know, large focus for us had always been the growth of the renewables market and the impact it has on particularly various uh, regional power markets. And I, you know, be, what we were really seeing is, you know, this often that was really driven by state programs and, and whatnot. And we saw over the past year or so, much more um, of that growth was driven by um, customer demand. So businesses that really felt that, you know, their initiative would be to really build out in this space. And so we're kind of continuing to focus on that um, because, you know, there's certainly potential to slow down in projects, but certainly a lot of interest in this area and how is that affected given how companies are experiencing this. So I guess by making none of those comments is, you know, we pick up these other threads that we are working with and we wonder, you know, how are longer term effects going to change all of the various, you know, inputs that are that go into consideration about how these various markets grow and progress and, and, and what's, the, what's the place that we, um, you know, play most effectively. Yeah, that, excellent points. I mean, it, it's a, a good question as to how, 
uh, project development, particularly on the electric power side, has been either slowed or or uh, not necessarily canceled, but slowed or just delayed because of the uncertainty. I mean, do you do you think it's too early to tell with some of those projects, or do you think it's uh, do you think we're going to start to be able to see a little bit more of the longer term effects appear within the next several months? Well, the other thing I think about is, you know, when this first hit us, nobody was really prepared to safely operate, uh, you know, when you have kind of jobs that have to be done in person with the right safety measures in place. And I think one of the things that has gone on is every company has thought to themselves, okay, so what do we need in terms of PPE? How can we design our practices to really minimize this? You know, how can we... Um, certainly prevent or greatly reduce any spread of infection, you know, with our workers or any customers we're interacting with. So I, I also think that to the extent that, you know, things would have, you would have thought, well, boy, we can't do these projects now. I, I think there are ways we've defined where we can really move forward in a number of these areas. And so I think that'll be less of a limiting function, even if we're going into subsequent difficult phases of, of COVID, right? So, um, and, and I think, you know, it's a different time. I mean, we're, as a company, we, you know, going back to the remote work thing, we're thinking, well, do we need as much real estate? You know, I guess that's a big question out there. You know, maybe, maybe we'll, we'll have a system where we're, we have half the office space. And, you know, so how does that, um, you know, impact, you know, so if you think a number of companies are considering that, then, you know, what does that mean for their consumption and their interest in any of these energy products in general and, and, and how are we going to see those, those dynamics play out? So I, you know, I don't know, I, I wouldn't claim to be able to predict the future, but um, you know, I, it, it's, it's a number of different considerations um, when looking forward as to how it's going to play out. Yeah. So um, Rob, Kate brought up gas markets, which I think natural gas relative to everything Oil has gotten so much attention uh, in in the in the COVID downturn because of some of what we saw early on. How are you thinking about natural gas markets and what we've seen? Uh, and has it changed your view on what was already a very sort of transformative uh, area in in our in our energy outlook? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. So I think you know when we look at kind of natural gas markets from a demand perspective, you haven't seen nearly the hit that you did have on the oil side, and that's just because of oil links to mobility. So in a sense, you know, the demand outlook in the very short term has been, you know, more resilient, uh, both here in the United States, as well as kind of internationally. I think as we sort of look at the medium term outlook for gas demand, I think we still see gas playing a pretty significant role here in the United States, um, just because of the low cost resource base, and the economic sort of coal to gas switch, um, that we'll continue to see in the power sector and a little bit more residential use. I think when we look internationally, um, the question more is kind of economics and, and sort of how does climate change and, and some of these other policies that are trying to kind of decarbonize economies play into that. So I, I think we still see a pretty strong role for gas. But then I think a lot of the, the opportunity in the business would really be defined on what happens on kind of the supply side. Um, and I think when we look at here in the United States, there's still a lot of low cost resource that will be developed. Um, to kind of meet that demand. Um, so the returns and sort of price potential for gas, we see less upside of that relative to oil. And then when we look at um, the LNG space internationally, um, you know, a similar thing, a lot of new LNG capacity has been brought online over the last few years. And so we see the LNG market, um, you know, is relatively long and, and a pretty competitive place to do business, at least for the next couple of years. Um, and then you know, supply and demand kind of catch up beyond that. And, but the, so the margin potential and sort of the upside price potential in the LNG market we see is pretty limited as you get out to kind of middle of this decade. So I want to um, remind everybody just to use the Q&A box to ask questions. We've got a number of good ones coming in. I'm going to talk a little bit longer with Rob and Kate before we turn to it, but just wanted to put that reminder in here because we'll turn to Q&A next. Okay, so one of the questions that I get probably two or three times a day, uh, I'm going to turn the tables and ask it to you guys, which is what the impact of the COVID-19 sort of economic downturn and all of the potential implications of that, I would say, including potential for stimulus and other regulatory measures, 
what impact that might have on the energy transition. And anecdotally, uh, I just spent an hour and a half before this call participating in another conversation on the energy transition where they polled us three times over the course of the dialogue, once at the beginning to see if we thought the COVID-19 economic downturn would accelerate, not change, or slow down the energy transition. And at the beginning of the call, there was the vast majority of the people said it would accelerate it. In the middle of the call, the majority switched to the slow down side. And by the end of the call, it was kind of back, kind of moderated in between the two sides. So clearly not a settled issue, but definitely wanted to get your thoughts on what the impact on the energy transition uh, might mean. So maybe we'll start with Kate. Uh, well, so, you know, I, I feel that one of the limiting factors for, you know, a total build out in renewable energy has always been the question of storage. And so as we kind of move through time, I think, you know, you've seen a lot more focus and investment in that area. And then, you know, uh, you know, investors willing to go forward with things that eventually will bring that cost down to the point where it really makes a whole lot of sense. And so I think you see a lot of those types of projects kind of coming to market. And then you also see a lot of that conversation really beginning to be had on a serious level in terms of um, in that kind of regulatory space to, to really figure out, well, how does this type of product really work in an organized market? You know, um, how does it participate? Who can participate with it, et cetera? Like, uh, you know, whether it's from an EDC perspective or from a supplier perspective, those types of things. Um, so I feel like that is already a, a thing that is moving forward. Um, I, if there's one thing I also think about the pandemic is, I think it's caused us all to stop and potentially re-question um, a number of assumptions we always had, you know, things that we didn't necessarily think were possible or behaviors that you didn't think would change. I think we've all proven that lots of things can change very quickly and there's a lot of resiliency out there. So I tend to think that to the extent that there's a lot of interest and I think the fundamental interest on a kind of a human and on a personal and a company level is still there for building out this renewable market as well as more on the state level that you'll still see that go by and we'll start to see where we don't have to rely so much on, on, on fossil fuels. Um, so, um, so, so I tend to think there's a, uh, there's a lot of momentum there. What I don't think we've seen is uh, any type of large government response, you know, in terms of um, resetting incentives like, to, to taking advantage of this opportunity. Opportunity, I'm not sure anybody thinks the pandemic is an opportunity per se, but this change to actually redirect in kind of any fundamental ways, kind of a push towards favoring one thing or other, it seems kind of a little bit more, um, uh, just uh, almost like a not taking us aside type thing. Um, so, which, which I think doesn't do anything to accelerate what potentially we, we, we could do a little bit more to more on. So. Rob, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I would agree with many of the points that, uh, that Kate made. I think to me, there's, there's sort of two aspects when we talk about energy transition. There's sort of, you know, are we on a more sustainable pathway from an emission standpoint? And I think as we look at how the world changes after COVID, I think, you know, we're increasingly convinced that it does probably put you on a more sustainable path from an emission standpoint, just because of some of the behavioral changes we expect. So I think we're expecting overall kind of less miles per unit of GDP to be traveled both in the air and in cars and trucks and such. And so that'll, you know, obviously help out in terms of the emissions trajectory. I think from sort of, uh, you know, greening or alternative fuel standpoint, um, I would agree with the points that made. I, I don't see the, the crisis necessarily backtracking that. And I think there could be an acceleration. And I think the answer to that is we see it really depends where in the world you sit. So, and I think Europe, um, you know, Sarah, you mentioned kind of green stimulus. I think clearly in Europe, they're you know, leaning that direction. Um, and so you could see an acceleration of kind of alternative uh, energy technology adoption uh, because of that. I think when we look in places like China and some of the key economies in Asia, I think they're leaning that direction. It may not be because of a, you know, climate perspective, but it may be more industrial policy and, and energy security. Uh, but I think we do see um, an acceleration there. I think the, the U.S. is less clear in terms of what that looks like. I know there's a fair amount of debate. I suspect, 
you know, some of that will depend on the outcomes of the election. I suspect some, you know, energy stimulus will be part, but, you know, what is included in that isn't totally clear. And so that will be a watch point uh, for us going forward. You, you both mentioned uh, sort of stimulus, and we've talked about this in a couple of places, but, uh, you know, the, one of the things that we're, we were interested in, and, and Rob, you, you had a lot of experience with this early on, maybe not you personally, but, but the oil and gas industry did, which is just this fundamental question about when governments are spending trillions of dollars to bail out economies or to keep economies functioning, they, there can be a lot more intervention in markets and in industries and the oil and gas industry, particularly in the United States, had a fairly developed conversation about who thought the government should come in and play more of an active role versus not. I mean, as this unravels, I mean, how are you guys as, as, as your companies and as industries taking a look around the world? And I mean, in some places we're seeing the prospect of, you know, government takeover of certain types of or sectors of their industry just to be able to manage them in a way that they want to if they're going to make such large investments. I mean, how are you seeing that trend uh, evolve and, and, and what's some of your thinking about it? Maybe we start with you, Rob, and then go to Kate. Sure. No, it's a, it's a great question. I think there's still a fair amount of um, uncertainty there. I think when we look from kind of an oil and gas perspective, you know, our watch point is there's a little bit of concern, as I mentioned, you know, the, the likelihood of some sort of consolidation across the industry um, coming out of this is, is probably needed to create a more sustainable financial model for the industry overall. Um, and, you know, one of the things with sort of these government bailouts and rescues and all that is, is it maybe it prolongs that kind of day of reckoning, if you will. Um, and so that would be a, a watch point for us there, um, you know, in terms of the oil and gas piece of it. And then I think as we look to sort of green stimulus and energy stimulus more broadly, I think our watch point and what we're trying to articulate is, hey, let's not artificially pick winners and losers when we start to sort of dole out. Let's, you know, you need sort of a resilient, um, diverse and sustainable kind of energy system. And so it's really sort of balancing those three aspects um, and making sure we're not artificially targeting the money to one sector or another to achieve certain political objectives or aims. Kate, did you have thoughts on that? Yeah, I, well, we spend a lot of time kind of on the policy front um, as, as Exelon. And, um, you know, I, I think in terms of really trying to educate policymakers as to kind of what the realities are of the industry. So in terms of, you know, any kind of, you know, massive, you know, um, programs that really uh, determine how the, how this, in these industries will be run. I, I'm, I'm less, less convinced that that would be the case because, you know, there, there's, you know, we have such a complex system, uh, you know, put together. You know, one of the things I'd bring up is um, right in the middle of the shutdown, we had a number of nuclear um, outages plans, refueling outages. And, you know, you had very much local jurisdictions very uncomfortable with the idea that there would be hundreds of workers descending into these, you know, somewhat remote locations, you know, from a health perspective, but really not understanding the, the cycle of how that really works and how that su ultimately supports the ability to provide power during the summer months when it's most needed, or even kind of the upcoming winter and, and the importance of, you know, this just can't be, you know, rescheduled or redone. So, so I, I use that as an example because, I, I would be hard pressed to think that, you know, a number of policymakers would, would be able to be that prescriptive. Um, and so I think that it's more important to kind of set up more of a framework and, you know, kind of along the lines of what Rob was saying, not necessarily pick a winner or loser, but, but present a system that's kind of supported in general of these industries. Great. Thank you. So I want to turn and we've got a number of really great questions. I'm kind of grouping them together, but Kate, one that uh, that does relate to some of the challenges that your industry might be facing is about utility and collectibles and, and what are the short-term strategies to sort of manage that. And I was thinking about that because it's clearly a place where yeah. government intervention has played a role so far. And so, so what you're thinking on that, uh, on that situation and where that might go. Yeah. So, um, so usually, uh, you know, certainly depending upon the various, um, you know, 
states and, and areas in which we operate, you know, there is an ability to kind of collect for say bad debt, uh, those types of things kind of in the future as that kind of, as new rate cases are, are negotiated and whatnot. So then it really becomes, um, at least from the utilities perspective, more of a cash flow management um, issue. So we're really looking closely at, you know, what we expect in terms of consumption, what we can expect in terms of what, what type of bad debt will accumulate. So we can just more efficiently make sure our planning is correct and um, either stick to or reorganize our, our um, capital investment plans such that um, these things can, you know, proceed in a kind of a economically um, prudent way. So, um, so that be, tends to be our focus and really understanding, you know, as, as Congress comes out with, um, you know, a number of uh, rounds of, of um, you know, policies, you know, we, we had went, we moved quickly to, to announce to customers that nobody would be cut off, that then became kind of a government mandate and so really understanding how long will that go on for, because that will really contribute as, as well to what our ability would be to continue these investment programs. So uh, a lot of research, a lot of um, trying to keep on top of it, uh, you know, predicting the unpredictable um, and, you know, protecting the balance sheet overall. Great. Thank you. So, Rob, uh, we've got a series of questions that would like you to talk to us a little bit about more uh, on the industry consolidation side, um, actions taken by b the bigger oil and gas companies in particular. I think people have noticed there have been write downs, there's been dividend cuts, there's, you know, there's lots of questions about, um, I think people accept the idea that smaller companies may not, there may be some consolidation there, but is this like a time where you might see big companies doing the same thing? So what is your thought on, on what people should expect to see in terms of the, the maybe the, the hit to companies or the actions that companies are gonna be taking over the next several months to, to weather this uh, issue? Yeah, and that's a great question. So maybe I'll start with kind of the, the very short term. So I think you'd mentioned kind of the dividend cuts. I think you've seen, you know, several announcements around sort of layoffs and OPEX reductions and efforts there. And so I'd say that the mindset is very much, you know, how do we kind of shrink um, our expenditures to fit within sort of, uh, you know, our, our outlook for, uh, you know, spending based on a lower price environment. And, you know, I, I think when you start to look at like the oil majors ourselves, uh, I mentioned we have a pretty strong balance sheet. You know, um, some of our competitors are more leveraged, but overall, I would say, you know, the, the oil majors will, will exit this and, and look pretty decent. I think how we all adapt to the, the COVID crisis and how that, you know, changes our forward strategy is, is diverging a little bit. And so you're seeing kind of the our European uh, competitors, you know, pursue more uh, portfolio diversification into gas, into power, into renewables. Um, I think, you know, like ourselves and ExxonMobil, you're seeing the trench into areas that we feel like we have very strong capabilities, like the shale sector, like deep water, like refining and marketing and petrochemicals. And so you're seeing those kind of strategies diverge. So as, as we start to talk about consolidation, um, I think, you know, for 2020, the question is, hey, can you get buyers and sellers to see you? And given the uncertainty we've talked about on kind of the outlook for not only the virus, but also, um, you know, the oil price recovery and the fact that financial markets have rebounded, it's hard to see kind of much traction in getting sort of buyers and sellers to meet in a, from an M&A standpoint. But as I, I think you get into kind of 2021 and some of that uncertainty becomes maybe a little bit clearer in terms of forward trajectory. Maybe that starts to grease the wheels and, and close those gaps. And so what I anticipate is the oil majors will probably look largely the same <clears throat> as they did pre-COVID, but you'll see a consolidation of some of the independents and more specialized folks who are, you know, operating in specific areas or geographies or basins. And it's really acquiring those resources into, you know, maybe those, the, the, the super major categories. Great. One question that applies uh, to both of you is uh, on electric vehicles. How much are you looking at, you know, announcements about electric vehicle plans from manufacturers, from, from other groups? I mean, is it something that you're paying a lot of attention to or that factors into your own planning in a significant way? Uh, so maybe we'll start with Kate. Um, well, 
we we spend a lot of time thinking about that because obviously that has a lot to do with um, what our longer term demand assumptions really look like. Um, so, but then you have this situation where, and Rob's mentioned a number of times um, over the course of the conversation, less miles traveled per GDP, I think is the, the term uh, he's been using. And so, you know, I certainly even just talking to a number of the folks on my team, there's a great desire to, to really take advantage of the ability to reduce mobility. So, you know, one of the um, projects we had um, in, in invested in, in um, uh, at our company was a, a, an electric vehicle um, kind of sharing program whereby um, you would, you know, pay a subscription and you'd have access to, you know, all these cars. And, you know, that was certainly part of the business that came under pressure because nobody needed a car. <laughs> you know, nobody was going anywhere. It no longer made sense. Um, so just watching that, um, that, uh, that interest decrease um, was kind of, you know, an interesting thing. So I don't know that what's going on now makes a whole lot of change except for in terms of the overall demand for these products in the near term. Rob? Yeah, so we, we spend a fair amount of time looking at electric vehicles, more, both from kind of a threat as well as an opportunity standpoint. Um, I would agree with Kay. I mean, I, I don't think COVID necessarily changes our sort of the trajectory of our thinking on electric vehicles. I mean, we're certainly monitoring, you know, what the automakers are doing. And it seems like um, because of the crisis, you know, plans um, to launch EVs and, and increase the number of offerings are maybe being delayed. But I think it's a matter of a couple of years, it's not decades. So I think the thrust of kind of the electrification of the passenger fleet um, is still alive and well in, in many markets. And so that's why we spend a fair amount of time looking at sort of uncertainties and trying to figure out how does that impact our core business. I think we're also looking at it from an opportunity standpoint and just saying, hey, is, is there, um, you know, a diversification play for a company like Chevron into electric vehicle charging? Uh, and is there a profitable business model there? And so we're looking at it in areas where we have a pretty big footprint, like say California or the Gulf Coast um, and where you start to see adoption. And so we're, you know, kind of dabbling um, and, and exploring partnerships in those places. Uh, but I would, you know, agree again, I, I don't think the, the COVID crisis necessarily changes kind of the thrust of where that sector is headed from our perspective. So uh, one other question that jumps out to me as the sky outside my home office gets dark and windy and kind of cloudy is uh, hurricane season and the, the sort of environment that we're going into, which is just a big planning season for your industries anyway. Do you think that w what we've been through and how we're currently postured because of COVID-19 is going to make it harder to deal with a hurricane or wildfire season? And how are you guys thinking about that? So maybe back to Kate again. Yeah, that, that's a, a large concern for us because, you know, particularly if we take it from the utility perspective, you know, when these disasters hit, we are generally working even outside of our company, um, supporting other workforces. And when you have, you know, all of these uh, new ways of working and then reduced ability to, you know, um, you know, be close with a number of people, there's a lot of concern about whether that extra labor is really going to be available um, in the in real time as we as we need it. So we've kicked off planning per, um, uh, events to make sure we're prepared and, and understanding of what those exposures will be. And and frankly, kind of practicing as we've seen a number of these large thunderstorms kind of rip through the East Coast because, you know, those are, you know, I think in our our uh, Pennsylvania region, we've had a couple of storms that have knocked folks out, you know, for a couple of days and, and trying to use this more limited, um, you know, or more constricted way of working um, to see how well we're able to uh, respond to that and how we would want to update those, those types of plans. Um, so that, that's kind of the main area in our company where we're really focused on it. Yeah, great. Thanks. Rob? Yeah, from, from our perspective, it's a great question. And I think, you know, we've already had a, a few events that we've had to kind of adapt. And so I would agree the combination of, of um, you know, COVID and the fact that hurricane season is projected to be a little bit more active than normal 
is definitely a, a cause for concern. But as we talked about previously, you know, we, we do a lot of um, business continuity and contingency planning. And so we're already looking at those things to make sure we have the ability to get uh, people off facilities and rigs and things safely um, without sort of har harming um, the operations. And then, you know, in the recovery phase, getting people out there and not exposing them to sort of undue health risks. And so those plans are underway, but certainly it adds an additional layer of complexity to how we actually execute those continuity plans should an event arise. Great. So I think we have time for one more short question. Um, I, one of the issues that uh, someone asked about, which I think is something everybody's dealing with is are you, how many of your employees actually want to come back to work? And is there a division between sort of the, you know, the older employees, the younger employees? Is there a division based on like what they do for their jobs? I think this speaks to this permanence question, right? You know, how many people are going to always be home versus, uh, uh, versus want to go back to the office tomorrow? And how are you guys grappling with those, uh, with, with, the, with the different ways people, people feel about getting back to the office? Maybe we'll do yeah. Yeah, so I'll um, say we've done a lot of surveying of our employees because we're, you know, making sure we're, you know, communicating the right um, amount with employees and providing the right kind of support. And, and that's one of the questions, you know, what's the interest in, in the remote working? And I think we are coming up somewhere between 65 to 80% of folks saying we really like it. Um, and so one of the concerns that I have, um, particularly for younger workers, um, is I, I think earlier on in someone's, or I don't mean younger by age, but in terms of level, earlier in one's career, there I think tends to be the feeling that, well, I'll just work really hard and everybody will just notice and they'll just pick me for the next job. And um, not as much of an awareness of how important it is to really, you know, I'll say the, the, the crazy network um, word, but just to really develop your connections throughout an organization and to really, um, have more people understand what you're about and what you, what you can do. And I think that will become more limited and with your ability to just not do that on the fly or within, you know, little five minute interactions. So I am um, kind of trying to bring that up with folks when they, you know, express their real huge enthusiasm, just at least so they'll be mindful of it. And then the other thing I would say is I had a conversation with one of my employees this morning who was saying, yeah, I really like this. It helps, I can start dinner, I don't have to do the commute, uh, you know, all those things. Um, and so I really like to do this more. And I said, well, how much though? Like, what if you were at home and you only came in the office two times a month? And he said, oh, well, no, I think 50-50 is my max. So I think when you ask that question, it, it means different things to people. I think people would like to have flexibility whenever they want it, but if they were to choose, you'd actually see them a little bit more in the office than you might actually expect. Yeah, that's a good point. Rob, what about you? Yeah, I think, you know, when you look at the employee surveys from, from our company, particularly the office-based folks, the primary concern right now is, hey, can you bring me back to work in a safe fashion that sort mm -hmm. of mitigates the risks? And so that seems to be the, the concern, number one. So a lot of our effort is, do we have the right safeguards in place? Um, you know, and, and it's very location-specific. So in Houston, you have a lot of people who carpool or take buses and then have to go up elevators. And how you mitigate those risks is very different than the office where I work. Um, and so there's, you know, very local-specific things that we kind of need to address. But the, the overarching kind of concern is, hey, can you bring me back to work in a, a fashion that I kind of feel safe? Um, and so I think given that, there's sort of a conservative, you know, staged approach, if you will, um, of, of bringing people back to work and, 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 you know, testing some things and maybe it means we backtrack and then the company is, you know, linked it to sort of local health outcomes. And so like in Houston, everybody was slated, um, not everybody, but the first phase was slated to come back on Monday, but that got delayed as sort of the infections in, in Texas and the Houston area started to ramp up. And so that, that seems to be top of mind. But I think, you know, as I mentioned before, I think everybody's been pleasantly surprised at to, you know, how productive you can be at home. Um, and so I think, you know, there's, there's no rush to get back to the office from our perspective. And it's, you know, all about, can we do that in a safe and effective way for our workforce? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that those are really important perspectives. We're grappling them with them ourselves, but, you know, we're in the business of ideas and they travel pretty well via Zoom. So I think uh, <laughs> we, we can probably work from home uh, perpetually. So thanks very much, guys, for this great conversation. I see Paula has been back on.
Right. Thank you so much, Sarah, Rob, Kate. Thank you guys so much. This was a really, really great um, discussion. A lot of activity in the Q&A um, and, and people were absolutely um, really riveted by what you were sharing. Um, quick reminder to everyone, as I said, this is week two of Wednesdays with Abe. Um, so next Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m., we will be talking about energy infrastructure and economic development. So I hope that you all will join us. If you have not been able to register, please visit our website, www.aabe.org 